Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 6th chapter, verses 12 through 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named, I'm sorry, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive in a very special way for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read through this list of names of your apostles, the very bedrock foundation of our church today, church throughout the ages, I pray that we will do more than just see them as a list of names, that we will try to comprehend the way that they are presented to us and the reason that they are presented to us in that way, that we are the descendants spiritually of this very foundational uh, start of the church, but that we won't take a look around at what we have become, but rather we will focus on what we were intended to be. And, And I think we can find the secret to that in the way that we are introduced to these apostles. We'll just ask for your illumination as we go through the text this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, uh, on another opportunity that Kay and I had to take a little bit of a break, we were blessed by one of her friends who had this gorgeous lake house in northern Georgia on a lake up in the mountains uh, uh, right at the foot of the Appalachians there. Uh, and it was getting close to winter. I can't remember whether it was late October or early November, but uh, the air for you know a couple from South Florida was cool and crisp, and, and and there was already some signs of winter that were starting to happen. Now, one of the bad things about being sort of a farmer at heart and getting up so early every day like I do normally is that when you have a chance to sleep in, your body doesn't make the adjustment and you just keep on waking up early in the morning. And such was the case on this particular morning as well before dawn when I got up and um, ended up in a chair in front of a big, beautiful bay window that looked out over this lake and the beautiful surroundings that were there. And of course, in the pre-dawn hours, everything is black. You can't see anything. But then, those of you who are familiar with the way the dawn sort of just gradually comes, the objects begin to materialize out of the grayness. And as this began to happen on this particular morning... it really wasn't all that beautiful of a scene. I mean, it was beautiful surroundings. But as I said, winter was on the way. Most of the leaves were gone. There was frost on the ground. The, um, the tops of the mountains were already covered in snow. And little patches of ice could be seen on the lake as it just began the process of freezing. But it really wasn't a very colorful sight. It was sort of gray and mundane and monotone and 
lifeless, actually, as the scene began to materialize. And to make things worse, there was a mist that had developed over the lake. And so there was this fog bank that just kind of obscured everything. But then something extraordinary happened. As soon as the sun peeped over the side of those mountains, but apparently it was perfectly arranged so that the light caught the mist, not just the light reflected off of the, the lake, the deep oranges and reds, but the light caught the mist and it was like a billion different little modules of moisture refracted and dissipated the light and it was an explosion of an almost white light. It was like somebody just turned a switch on and all of a sudden I'm in the middle of the most glorious sunrise that I think I've ever seen. Now, my point is this. This is a perfect analogy of the church, of who we are. We are that dull gray mist, folks. We're lifeless and shapeless and meaningless with no color and no ability. And the only reason that we have power in the church is because we are energized and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. You see, that's the sun that comes, that lights it up and gives us the luminescence and the power and the light that is needed in the world in which we live. Now, that's not an original idea of mine. In fact, I read something that this reminded me of, oh, oh years ago. It was written over 100 years ago by a, a great old Scottish pastor called Alexander McLaren. And this is what he said. He says, the church is but a cold, dark, gray, lifeless mist of little interest or beauty on its own. But when the Son of God shines His light upon that mist and through that mist and radiates through the mist, that cold, lifeless body becomes a glorious sunrise, full of life, full of color, full of warmth and promise. So I want you to keep that image alive in your mind as we begin to look at these these apostles, the foundation of our church. The, The most important men other than Jesus in the Christian church. And I just want you to notice the way that they are presented to us. Because they're presented to us as a lifeless, dull, gray mist, folks. And their power, their ability, is all because Jesus is shining through them. Now, as we make our way through Luke, most of you have been here, off and on, some of you haven't, but uh, Luke has been introducing Jesus to us as the Messiah, and he's been telling us what kind of Messiah he is going to be and what kind of Messiah he is not going to be. During the temptations with the devil, we saw what he was not going to end up being. But we, we saw how important the good news of the kingdom of God is to the ministry of Jesus. And back in the fourth chapter, 43rd verse, he, he makes this statement, he says, says that I must preach the good news of, of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was sent so that we might know that he would preach and actually be the good news uh, of the gospel. Now, we've seen him work many miracles during the last couple of weeks and months, and, and we've seen him heal many people. But that healing was more for the authentication and authority of who he was and to authenticate his message as well. Now, in those healings, we have also seen metaphors of the amazing redemption that he is going to bring, whether it is the righteousness that will be given to us or the 
the sacrificial atonement that he achieved on the cross. All of that has been wrapped up in these great miracles that he's been working. And we even saw almost an allegory of the impact that the good news is going to have on the world in that miraculous catch when the disciples were out fishing. And we have seen the way that they are going to change the spiritual landscape of a darkened world. We also have seen how that darkened world is going to react to Jesus because we've seen the, already the animosity and hostility that he has been found, he's found amongst the religious leaders of his day. But there are basically three images that I want to bring out of what we've already studied that I want you to also have in the back of your mind. You're going to need your imagination this morning because I'm going to give you about four or five images and I want them all to sort of meld together. First of all, that all important, at least important to me, the feast that Simon threw for, I'm not Simon, but Levi threw for Jesus after he was converted, where all of the lowlifes of Capernaum, the sinners of sinners, the worst people in town are all gathered around Jesus. There he is reclining at table. And, and, and we've, we've talked about that as a metaphor of Emmanuel, of God in the midst of the people he came to save, of Jesus in the sewer looking for his bride. All those beautiful metaphors we saw as he's right in the middle of those he came to save. Remember, he says, I didn't come to call the, the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners. But then we've also seen another image that I want you to hold in your mind. We've seen it a couple of times, and that is Jesus in a very different setting and among a very different group of people, but also in the midst of abject sinners, and that is Jesus in the synagogue surrounded by a hostile group of Pharisees. And, and, and even though they hate Jesus, and even though they're already plotting to kill him, our loving and compassionate and merciful Lord is going to draw his bride from the likes of them as well. I mean, look at Paul of Tarsus and you'll see that even those who hated him and worked against him, his love is so great that that's, he's going to establish his church from them as well. And the third image that I want you to see, and I really want you to kind of superimpose this upon that glorious, brilliant light of dawn, and that is the scene that we saw out on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, when the miraculous catch was made and your two boats are swamping because there's too many fish and the net's breaking. And, and they're struggling like crazy to bring in that catch. And there's Peter on his knees in front of Jesus, completely mortified and repentant. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Brothers and sisters, if you can interpose or transpose that on top of that glorious sunlight with Jesus shining through the mist... I think you can get a picture of what the church was designed to be. And I think you can see it pretty clearly. Now, one other thing that I want you to see, I want you to remember from what we have already um, studied. And that is the reference that we've had, and we've talked about it several times, of Jesus as the bridegroom of the bride of Christ. I already mentioned it. He has come into this world, this fallen dark world, to find his bride so that he can take her back to his father. His father has given the bride to him, and now he is going to cleanse her and purify her and redeemer to take back to the father. We read things like this in his 
high priestly prayer. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about the church. We're talking about the bride of Christ, and that bride of Christ is indeed the church. Paul goes on and uses this metaphor. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, in other words, establishing that the relationship between Christ and his church is like a husband and a wife. And of course, we, we get the most beautiful discussion of this, not also in the Old Testament, but in the book of Revelation, we read things like this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That bride is us. It is the church. These men, it's also that group of sinners at Levi's house and the hateful Pharisees who are also, some of them, the ones who will indeed believe who are in the synagogues. This is the foundation of the church. Okay, now the reason I'm making this point is because we are going to be introduced to the bedrock of that foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are going to be introduced to those upon whose shoulders, upon whose back, the the church is going to be built. Remember what Jesus said when he's talking not just to Peter, but to all of his disciples, when he says... You are built on the foundations of, I'm sorry, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then Paul makes that statement that I was just reading, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. So therefore, when we talk about the church, when we talk about the mist, when we talk about who we are today, we need to recognize that we are about to be introduced to the foundation of that church. And I want you to recognize how they are introduced. Because we're not going to talk this morning so much about who these 12 men were. I'm really focusing on 11. But what we don't know about them, it's extraordinary how obscure they are in the scriptures. How little we are told about their lives. And yet, besides Jesus, they're the most important people in the church because they're the foundation of that church. Now, I know that's quite a bit for you to keep in your minds at one time. I'm taxing your imagination, but kind of hold those there as we go through the text, and I hope that the images will be increased. So let's take a look at the 12th verse. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, Luke tends to to give us a little bit of a, of a setting the scene when he starts a, a new part of his narrative. I want you to notice where he says there in these days. Notice that he continues almost in every single little passage we've looked at. He has an arbitrary designation of time. He is piecing this together to tell a story. And where he has this list of the 12 is not where Matthew has it, for instance. Matthew puts it after the Sermon on the Mount and after nine miracles that are worked corresponding with that sermon. Matthew's telling his story and Luke is telling his story. They're not organizing these things in a a sequential manner. And, And Luke has a strategic reason for placing this just before Jesus begins or his rendition of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
We'll probably get that into that a little bit more next week than we will this week. But notice that, okay, first of all, there is an arbitrary designation of time. And then there's not a real designation of where this takes place. All we are told is that he went out to the mountain. Interesting, it's not just a mountain. Apparently, it was a place that he probably liked to go when he wanted to get away and pray. Now, those of you who have been to the Sea of Galilee know that there's, a, uh, there's hills and mountains all the way around. In fact, the, the picture on the front of your, uh, of your brochure is one we took from Tiberias that's overlooking the Sea of Galilee as the sun rises over the top of the hills. And so Jesus had plenty of hills that he could go unto in order to pray, and he tended to do that. He, he liked to go to desolate places because... Jesus had a passion for praying to his father. He, 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 he relished it. And, and, and there was important things that he had to talk to him about. And so we see that he gets away. He goes up onto a mountain and he prays all night. All night he continued in prayer. Now, in every sermon, I've, I've, I've got to... I had to keep some stuff in and throw some stuff out. I'm not going to throw this out. I'm going to talk about it in the after church. I'm just going to move it back to the after church. But to me, there's something really significant here. Um, The Bible presents Jesus as our model. He is the perfectly sanctified human being. And, and, and that's what we're going to be when we're glorified in heaven. We're going to reach a, a level of sanctification that is sinless in nature. Okay, we're never going to be like Jesus, but we are going to be sinless. We're going to have glorified bodies. Well, that's not me now. This is the model that we want to achieve. I'm way down the road someplace. And forgive me if I preach to myself a little bit because pastors do this all the time. They preach messages that they need to hear. And I need to hear this. Because the sanctified human being loves to spend time with God in prayer. The non-sanctified person or the person who is on the road of their sanctification is struggling, as I do and as I know as many of you do, because when we sit down to pray, I mean, 10 minutes later, the world is closing in and pulling us away from our concentration on God. Jesus prays all night long. And let me tell you something, I've been to quite a few um, all-night prayer vigils, more in Haiti than here, and I'm not sure that the prayers all night long are as fervent or as intense as Jesus is praying to his Father. I don't think he falls asleep in the slightest. But he, he, he has this great desire to be with his Father in prayer, something that I want to explore with you a little bit. It's a fascinating study, I think, to look at Jesus and compare ourselves to him and to ask ourselves, how do we get from here to there? Now, of course, I know it's only through the glorification of our bodies that we're going to be like that. But that's the process that God has each one of us on in Christ is to grow in our sanctification to where ultimately we are like him. But the question that arises to get back to the text is, why is he praying all night? I mean, he didn't always pray all night. So obviously, there would be some reasons. Now, I think there's an obvious reason and a not so obvious reason. The obvious reason is that this is a big decision. These 12 are, as I keep telling you, these are hugely important people in the process of redemptive history and in the establishment of the church. So, as we'll see later on, there's quite a few people to choose between. 
So the choice of these 12 is hugely important. And whenever Jesus had a, a, a really big decision like this or something that troubled him, he would go to his father. So that's one of the reasons. That's the obvious reason. But I think there's probably also a not so obvious reason. Jesus tended to pray fervently to his father when he was facing the anxiety of the cross. And I think just the fact of choosing the apostles, why does he need apostles in the first place? Well, he needs apostles in the first place because he's leaving. He's going back to heaven after the cross. So just the discussion of the apostles brings, I think, the cross crushing down upon him and the horrible uh, uh, approach of, 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 of he who knew no sin becoming sin for us and suffering the wrath of God. Uh, I, I just think that that probably drove him to uh, a position on the mount so that he spent that entire night in prayer, which um, is the not-so-obvious reason. Well, anyway, going on to the 13th verse, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, I know that when you read through this, typically that's just like an introduction to the really important part, which are the 12 names that follow. Well, I'm going to do it in reverse. I'm going to spend most of my time on this 13th verse because we need to unpack it a little bit. And, and then we're going to just kind of skim through the verse, through, through the name. So when we come, you know, it gets a little bit late and we haven't even started the 12 yet, don't worry. We're, we're, we're skimming through them. Uh, in fact, we're going to concentrate more on what we don't know about these men than what we do know. But let's take a look at the, let's unpack this as we look at the 13th verse. And when day came, okay, we know that when day came, that tells us what? Tells us that Jesus prayed all night long. How the connection with his disciples occurred, I'm not 100% sure. He's on the mountain. I don't think they're up there with him. But I think they end up in the mountain, or at least it appears to be that. Uh, it's hard for us to know that, so it's best not to be dogmatic about it either way. But nonetheless, when day comes, he called and chose. Let's just take a look at that. He called and then he chose. Brothers and sisters, this is the language of sovereign election. This is the language of Jesus making a sovereign choice of who would be his apostles. No one becomes an apostle by choosing to be an apostle. It is not something that any individual can decide for themselves. I'm going to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, even though we have a lot of people out there right now claiming to be apostles. This is something that Jesus sovereignly called and chose. And, and, and it's not just being called and chosen. There, there is the idea that is part of this of, of, of an ownership that is created when Jesus calls them um, in, into his sovereign choice. I mean, we can see this clearly stated in Scripture. If we go back to John in the, um, the so-called upper room discourse, this is what he says. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So the choice is entirely Jesus. I just really want to emphasize this. This is a sovereign choice that Jesus makes. 
And along with that choice is not just to choose people. There is the idea of ownership. There is the idea that Jesus now is the sovereign authority over these men. Remember what he says? He says it in all of the gospel or all of the synoptics anyway. When he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That means to lose your identity. That means that I am from this point on your master and your Lord. Now, let me just make this clear. Jesus has called these men to be his apostles, to share his gospel in his creation, to throw his net into his world, to catch his fish, to be his shepherds over his sheep. To be his generals in his war against the darkness as he establishes his kingdom in this his earth. Have I made my point? Have I made it? Seriously, I'm not joking. This is a sovereign choice by the one who energizes and defines the church. Now, there's a tendency in modern Christendom to remove Jesus from the central of the church. You can't do that. And have the church. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the sovereign chooser and caller of all that occurs in this church. You can't rationalize him away. It's all about Jesus. And that's the image I want you to see with the dull gray mist. Because without Jesus, that's all we are. No matter how many of us there are. We're just a dull gray mist. Lifeless without any purpose or focus until we are energized by the light of Christ. That is what the church is designed to be. Well, you notice that I skipped over a word um, he, because he called his disciples and chose 12 of them. And so there's a distinction here between disciple and apostle. I want to make sure that we see a disciple is basically a student, a learner, um, and a follower. In, in, in a New Testament context, the idea of a disciple's a, a little bit stronger. There's more of a dedication in it, more of a conviction to be a disciple than the idea that we have. In other words, to be someone's disciple is just not just to read them or to listen to them talk. It was literally to follow them. I mean, early on in John's gospel, we see probably John and certainly Andrew as disciples of John the Baptist way down in Judea and the Jordan River when they live in Galilee. You see, they have followed John the Baptist because they are his disciples. So a disciple was not just one who, who, who believed, not just one who listened, not just one who studied, but also one who followed. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that there were a bunch of disciples we tend to think that there are 12 disciples. In fact, in movies and on TV, what do you see? You see Jesus walking around the countryside with just 12 men. Well, that's not the way it was. There was a whole bunch of disciples, men and women, who followed Jesus around all the time. Do you remember what Jesus is going to do pretty soon? And Luke, he's going to send out 72 disciples ahead of him so that they can prepare the way for him in the various villages. In John 6, do you remember what happened when his doctrine began to get a little bit intense? Like, you know, if, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Well, we read that many of his disciples left him. Now, if there's only 12 disciples, which ones left and which ones stayed? And how you end up with 12? So, 
In other words, what I'm pointing out is that when Jesus chose these 12 men, it was a real choice. It was a whole bunch of people that he chose between that he called these particular men to be his disciples. And so therefore, we want to look at the nature of those men and know that there were others out there who might be more qualified, who might be more wealthy, who might be more trained, that he didn't call to be his apostles because he called them to be um, for a particular reason. Now, there's a number of the apostles, or apostles that he calls, and the number is 12. And I wish I had time now to go into this. I'm not going to because it's a fascinating study. It would take a little bit of time. We're going to talk about it in the after church. So if this interests you, come back in the after church because the number 12 is not an arbitrary number. It's not that we just decided, okay, well, we, we, we got 12 guys here, so let's choose those. It's not an arbitrary number, but it's wrapped up in something we've already studied when Jesus says that I cannot put the new wine of the kingdom of God in the old wineskins of Judaism, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, there's something worth, uh, worth uh, maintaining the, the wine. We don't want it to spill. Well, one of the things that is going on here is we have the 12 patriarchs that typify what it meant to be a children of Israel, the people of God, and now we have 12 disciples which represent the new Israel, the Israel of God going forward. There is something old. There's a continuity with the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish them but to fulfill them. But this brand new because these are new patriarchs in a new Israel. Go to, the, go to Revelations. Look at the, at the holy city coming down uh, in, in John's vision. What are you going to see? You're going to see 12 tribes of Israel over the gates of the city, and you're going to see 12 apostles and their names on the pillars. Okay? It's a transition from one to the other. Now, if you're interested to know who the 12th apostle is, or I told the Wednesday night uh, group that I would, I would reveal it in the after church who I thought the 12th apostle is, whether it's Matthias or whether it's Paul. We'll talk about that in the after church. But the number 12 is significant as a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the fact that it's brand new. It's a new Israel, but it's still Israel. Okay, It's still the Israel of God, even though a lot of them will be Gentiles. Well, let's move on to the kind of the operative word here. And that is that Jesus called these men, chose them from all of his disciples to be apostles. Now, most of you are familiar with the Greek underlying that word. I've talked about it quite a lot. Um, apostello is the verb form. And, you know, I usually talk about it in the context of who we are and how we relate to that because we are not the apostles with a capital A. We are apostlers. We are sent ones as well. And we go apostling when we go out. Those are made up words, by the way, if you're visiting. Um, you won't find those in the dictionary. We just made them up here. Or at least I made them up here. Um, but, but this morning, we're going to talk about the real meaning of the word, apostle with a capital A, the apostles that Jesus has called to himself, the, and, and what the meaning of that word is. 
Now, originally, going back into the Greek, going back into the etymology of that word, it was originally referring to kind of a flotilla. It was always like ships that were being sent across the sea towards a particular destination. And eventually, it came to be a word in a noun form that was referring to the captain or the admiral of that flotilla. And, and so it, it, it took on that idea of being sent towards something with a purpose, a task, and a destination. Now, the way that it is used in the New Testament is sort of a New Testament invention. It's not used that way in other parts of Greek, although there is the idea of authority that is included in that. In other words, if a king sent an emissary or an ambassador as an apostle, if he sent him that way, then that person went forward with the full authority to engage in contracts or uh, covenants that the, the king had. And it was expected that you would accept him and treat him with the same respect that you would treat the king. But in the New Testament context, there's only one word who became flesh. Only once did God become incarnate in human flesh and call and choose and send human beings with his authority and his capability and his power to share his gospel and be the foundation of his church. Okay? Only once is that. So it's entirely unique. Now, Luke and the other gospel writers use the word apostle, capital A is what I, the way I say it, um, use that word apostle in that narrower, richer sense. Paul, on occasion, will actually use the word in a broader sense, more like the, the original Greek meaning of the word. For instance, he will refer to such people as, um, uh, as Barnabas, Epaphroditus, Apollos, Silvanus, and, Tim- and Timothy as apostles. But that's not the way that Luke uses it, either in the book of Acts originally or in the Gospels or the other Gospel writers. It is in that narrower, richer sense of those who have seen the resurrected Christ and been called and sent by him. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians when he identifies himself as an apostle. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Have I not seen him? Of course, it was on the road to Damascus that he saw him. Now, the, the, the book of Acts in the very beginning gives us probably the best definition that we have of what constituted an original apostle because they're replacing Judas. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the choice. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, therefore, an apostle with a capital A in the narrow sense in which the gospel writers refer to it, an apostle is one who saw physically the resurrected Lord was called and chosen by God himself, by either Christ or the Spirit of God in the first book of Acts, uh, or with Paul, the same situation that he was called by Christ, he saw the resurrected Christ, and was sent 
sent forward as his representative with full authority to act and do things in his name and to authenticate themselves with the mighty miracles that they were empowered to do. That is what an apostle is. And and unfortunately, the idea of an apostle has been grossly misused. So I don't have a lot of time to spend on it, and I don't want to spend much time on it, but let me tell you real quickly what an apostle is not. An apostle, in the sense that we are using it here, is not an ecclesiastical office like elder or deacon. People do not ascend to apostles because they've been with the church a long time. It is not a, a, a dynasty or a lineage passed down from one descendant of, the, uh, of Peter to another, such as Roman Catholicism wants to do with the popes. It, it, it is not a, uh, uh, defined by a certain degree of perceived charismatic gifts. Uh, and, and it is not something that a bunch of people who also have that same perception of their charismatic gifts can get together and to decide that someone is an apostle, which is what's being done today in an entire movement with tens of millions of people in it called the New Apostolic Reformation. In fact, they call themselves to be apostles with more power than the original. So for all those people who claim to be apostles, I have four questions for you out of the scripture as far as the definition of what an apostle is. The first question is, have you physically seen the risen Lord and been called by him to be an apostle? Has he sent you personally, Jesus Christ, physically seen him? I'm not talking about in a dream. I don't mean hearing a voice. I mean, have you been confronted with the risen Christ and have you been called to be an apostle by him? Because that's kind of foundational to what an apostle is. Secondly, can you authenticate who you are and what your claim is? By recognizable, demonstrative, and repeatable miracles. And I'm not talking about praying for someone who gets well and you call it a miracle. I'm talking about walking down the hospital and bringing the dead back to life. I'm talking about walking down the street and people bringing people to put into your shadow so that your shadow will fall upon them and heal them. I'm talking about amazing, demonstrative miracles. Can you authenticate who you are by showing it through the same kind of authority that Jesus gave his Disciples. Thirdly, are you the foundation of the church? Paul says that the church is built upon the shoulders of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. That happened 2,000 years ago. How do you fit in? How do you become an apostle if 2,000 years ago the church was built on their shoulders? That's a tough one. Explain how that happens. And thirdly, and this is kind of where I want to turn my attention to now. Are you completely anonymous? Are you absolutely obscure? (laughs) Do you strut around on stage bringing attention to yourself? Or does no one know who you are? Does no one remember you? Does the only thing that people think about when they know you or hear you is Jesus? Because that's what the apostles did. And that's the reason 
we have a list like this, and that's the reason I want to turn my attention to that list. And as I said, we're not going to go through, talk in detail about what we know about these apostles. We're actually going to bring out more fully what we don't know. This is an extraordinary list. Okay, there's three things I want you to notice about these men. First of all, the ordinariness of the, That's probably not a word. I think I made that up too. The ordinariness of the men. These aren't the brightest and best. These aren't the cream of the crop. These are not the intellectuals down in Jerusalem gathering at the temple every day to argue the fine points of the law. These are not the ones who have been to seminary, who have sat at the foot of Gamaliel, that have, have, have had the training uh, in, in the great things of religion. These are ordinary, everyday men. They're fishermen for the most part. They're from Galilee. People make fun of people from Galilee because they talk funny. They make their living with their hands. For the most part, they're not wealthy. I mean, I think the only one who really had any money amongst them was Levi. And he got it by extorting it from other people. The only other designation of note that we're going to have in here is Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were first century terrorists. They did horrible things. So, I mean, these these aren't the cream of the crop, folks. And I know I'm going to pay for this one day. I keep calling them losers. But they're a bunch of losers. They, they, they really are. They're the dull gray mist. And, and, and they're of no account unless Jesus shines in them. And that was done by design. This whole presentation of the apostles is done by design. Because it's all about Jesus and it's not about them. And they were so successful in presenting Jesus and not them that we hardly know anything about them. So, first of all, they're ordinary. Second of all, there's only 11 of them. (laughs) 12. Judas, of course, is going to um, betray Jesus and die. I I know you know this. and, And I know we talk about it all the time. But, I mean, when we talk about the extraordinary nature of this list, we need to remind ourselves that within a couple of decades, there is going to be an exponential growth of the church completely around the Mediterranean basin. It is going to grow like wildfire. It's going to spread across the world. There are now billions of people on this planet who profess to be Christians. They're from every race, every ethnicity, every culture, every economic strata, every social strata, all different kinds of intellects and it all started with 11 ordinary men. That's miraculous, if not a bona fide miracle. And thirdly, I want you just, and I've already made the, the, the case, I want you to notice their obscurity. And we go through this list, you'll, you'll notice that there's, there's a trend here, folks. There's a trend. You, you know more about modern heretics than you know about most of these disciples. You know more about me. You know more about the pastors who write books. You know more about virtually everyone in church history than you know about the men upon whose shoulders the church was built. Now, this list that we're going to look at is one of four. And interesting, and we don't have time to really study lists, but it's worth noting that they all start out with the same name. Peter's always first. 
And they all end with the same name. Judas Iscariot is always last, except for the one in the book of Acts. There's the three synoptics and one, the book of Acts. Um, The same four names are always in the first group. They're divided into three groups of four for the most part. And each group starts with the same name. In other words, the first group is always Peter. The second group is always Philip. And the third group is always James of Alphaeus or Alphaeus, however you want to pronounce that. Now, beyond that, they're all jumbled up. And in fact, even the names don't match. Except for that first group, it's always Peter and Andrew, James and John. The two sets of brothers. And, and so, th- there's not a consistency with the list. And in fact, a lot of these guys, we, we, we don't even get their names right. Or we don't even know their names. So, let's go through it real quickly. As I said, we're not going to um, spend a lot of time talking about um, what they, who they are and what they have done. But basically... What we don't know about them. Now, of course, the, the, the best known of the apostles is the first one, always listed first, and that's Peter. The Gospels are full of discussion about Peter. Um, and and uh, maybe Paul we know a, little, uh, a whole lot about, but that's just, it's going to come later on. But just notice how we know Peter. I mean, we, we know him as sort of a blustery guy, a me too, me first kind of guy, always putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, we see him for all of his faults. Now, he has times of brilliance, but he also has times that you just wonder, Peter, how on earth can you do that? I mean, like he's the one on his knees in front of Jesus right now in the image I want you to see. He's the one that's recognizing Christ's divinity. He's the one who says, you are the son of God. I mean, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then he turns right around and he says, you're not going to the cross because I'm going to keep you from doing it. Or he has the faith to get out of the boat and walk on the water, but then he loses faith and he sinks. Or he's the one who... Denies that he even knows Jesus three times. So we see Peter do some amazing things. And then we see him do some of the most inexplicable things. Like what he did up on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he tries to build booths for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. We know that he was born in Bethsaida. We know that he moved to Capernaum. We know that he had a house. We know that he was married. We know that he had a mother-in-law. We know that he was a fisherman. We also know that in the beginning of the book of Acts, that he was a mighty preacher and a mighty apostle doing amazing works. But then something even more amazing happens. Peter just falls off the face of the New Testament, except for a mention in Galatians and a couple of other mentions around. By midway through the book of Acts, Peter just disappears. And then, as far as Scripture is concerned, we don't know where he ministered. We don't know the churches he started. We don't know how many people came into the kingdom because of him. We don't know whether he died. We don't know if he had any... Well, we know he died. We don't know how he died. Now, we know these things from church tradition, but Scriptures is absolutely silent as far as all of these are concerned. Now, what I mentioned earlier about the twelve. And these 12 being the, the new patriarchs, the new Israel. Well, don't you think we should know at least as much about Peter as we knew about Abraham? Think about all the things you know about Abraham. You know where he came from. You know how God called him. You have all these escapades. You know how Isaac came about. You know where he died. We even know where he's buried. We don't know any of that about Peter. Now, granted, we know a lot about him. But considering who he is, the premier apostle 
the, the premier apostle among equals. It's amazing how little we actually know about him. And we know even less about his brother Andrew. We know that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. We know that he had a propensity for leading people to Christ. He's the one that sort of told Peter about Christ when the Greeks came. And they asked Philip, you know, what's on this, uh, on this pulpit? Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip took him to Andrew and Andrew took him to Jesus. That's a great designation. But Andrew had a life. He had thoughts. What are they? Where did he live? Was he married? Did he have children? Where did he minister? Were there any churches that he established? And and how did he die? We know almost nothing about Andrew. The other two who are listed in that first group are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. James is the one that gets me. James was a pillar of the church of Jerusalem. We know that. He was one of the inner circle. He was one, Peter, James, and John were asked to do things that the rest of the apostles weren't asked to do. They went with Jairus when he raised his daughter from the dead. They were invited up to the, to the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the special ones taken aside in the Garden of Gethsemane. James was as close to the Lord as, as you can get. And we hear about him a little bit in the beginning of Acts, that he was a pillar of the church, and then he's killed. Now here's what gets me. There's an obscure deacon by the name of Stephen. And he gets two chapters in Acts. We hear his whole speech. We hear everything that he has to say in detail. We hear how he was killed, how he was stoned, what he was thinking about as he died. We get one line from James. And he was killed by the sword. That's it. You hear nothing more about this man. Same thing with John. John wrote his gospel He gives us more theological and Christological insight into who Jesus is. Yet in his own gospel, he never refers to himself once. And he refers to himself in sort of an enigmatic way as the one Jesus loved. But he never calls himself John. Wherever you see John in the gospel of John, it's John the Baptist. We wouldn't even know that he was on the island of Patmos if it wasn't for a revelation. Look at the books this man wrote. The Gospel of John, the three epistles, the book of Revelation, how important those books are. And we don't know how he died. We don't know. Wouldn't you like to know if he actually did get burned in oil? I mean, you know, that whole story where he's supposed to get, you know, boiled in oil and the rain comes and puts the fire out. They light it again. It comes down and puts it out again. Boy, what a great story. I would like to know that. But scripture is absolutely silent. You hear about him a couple of times in Acts and then you don't hear about him anymore. Hardly at all. So that's the, that's the main four. That's the big group. And, and, and it actually even gets worse from there. The next name is Philip. And Philip, you know, um, he had some good points. He, he tended also to be the kind that would take people to Jesus after all. Um, I, we think that he is the one who led Nathaniel there. And when the Greeks came, they asked him and he took them to Andrew and went on to Jesus. Uh, but what else do we know about Philip? Well, mainly negative, right? From 14th chapter of John. Philip perks up and says, hey, Lord, Show us the Father. We'd love to see him. And Jesus shakes his head and says, Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you still don't understand who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how we remember Philip. 
Now, of course, there's the book of Acts. And there's a Philip there, right? Working in Samaria, does amazing things, great miracles. He's the one that was transported to the eunuch of Ethiopia who's reading Isaiah, leads him to Christ, takes him down and baptizes him. Oh, but that's a different Philip. That's an obscure, unknown Philip. Our Philip, the apostle, is not even mentioned after the list that's there in Acts. And so we see the trend that is going on. Next is Bartholomew. Okay? Bartholomew is extremely interesting because Bartholomew is not even a name. It means the son of Thalami or Talami. Now, that's either a place or it's a person. So what was his real name? Well, John doesn't even mention Bartholomew. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do mention Bartholomew in the lists, but that's the only place he's mentioned. Now, John doesn't mention Bartholomew, but he mentions Nathaniel. And that's what most scholars believe, that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. But don't you think it would have been nice if that had been explained to us? Don't you think it would have been nice if that would have been spelled out and said, oh, this is Bartholomew and he's also Nathaniel? Because Nathaniel had some very redeeming qualities. Remember, he's the one that Jesus says, ah, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. But he's also the one that turned around and says, does anything good come from Nazareth? But scripture is totally silent on who he is. Not, not, not a word. And then there's Matthew. Matthew, Levi, who wrote the great uh, gospel, one of the most important books in the Bible. In his own gospel, he lists himself twice and he never ever refers to himself unless he puts that the tax collector behind it. That humility of who he was and how Christ called him out of that. Matthew, after his conversion, after the, the feast at, at his house with Jesus, except for the lists, falls off the face of the planet. He's never mentioned. What, what happened to Matthew? How did he die? Where did he minister? All of these things are significant, but we don't know anything about him. This most important man who left us the amazing book of Matthew, we know nothing at all about him, about the man. For the last of this group is, of course, Thomas. Thomas Didymus, or that means Thomas the twin. So did he have a twin? Was one of the other disciples Thomas's twin? But let me ask you, how do you remember Thomas when you think of Thomas? How do you remember it? Do you remember Thomas the courageous, all right? The one who in John 11 said, hey, Jesus is going back to Judea. They're going to kill him, but let's go back and die with him. Well, a little bit fatalistic, but perhaps nonetheless courageous. Or do you remember him because he made the most profound statement of who Jesus is, my Lord and my God? You don't remember him that way, do you? You've already said it. Remember as Thomas, what? The doubter. Thomas the doubter. Because he doubted Jesus. That's the way you remember him. You don't know anything about his ministry. You don't know where he ministered. You don't know who, how he lived or when he died. Now, we think he died in India or Persia, but that's church tradition. It's not what scripture tells us. Are you beginning to see this? 
Okay, the last group. James, the son of Alphaeus or the son of Alphaeus. It doesn't matter how you pronounce it. But obviously, James is not James the Greater, who was James, the son of Zebedee. This is, he's known as James the Lesser, if you will, to the, for the distinction. You'll always see him with the son of Alphaeus behind his name. But probably he's best known for that. And the reason he's best known for that is because Mark also tells us that Matthew was the son of Alphaeus. Now, wouldn't you like to know if they were brothers? If they were this third set of brothers? Wouldn't that have been relevant information if that was the same Alphaeus or Alphaeus? That, that, that actually perhaps Levi led his brother to the Lord. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Do you realize that James might have actually been there at that, that feast where Jesus was reclining at table because we talked about it being evangelistic in nature? What a great story that would be. But the scriptures are totally, totally um, blank. He is absolutely obscure. Totally and completely anonymous in that sense. Well, then we get to Simon the Zealot. And as I already mentioned, Zealot, that was one of the branches of Judaism. More political than it was religious. In fact, they were indeed considered to be first century terrorists. They did horrible things. They started a civil war. They murdered people on the inside of Jerusalem while the, while the Romans are on the outside. And in fact, the Romans were pretty much just waiting for the Sadducees and the um, zealots to kill each other before they moved in. Wouldn't you like to know the conversion story? I mean, I think that's a great story. Now, we have Levi's conversion story, right? One line, and Jesus says, follow me, and he got up from his money table and followed him. But we don't even have that about James the son, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Simon the zealot. I'd love to know how he was saved and how he stopped being a zealot. And you know what I'd also like to know? I'd like to know how Matthew... And Simon got along with each other. Because if Simon is actually still a zealot, Matthew has to fear for his life every night when he goes to sleep. Because the zealots hated the tax collectors and killed him. That's one of the kind of people that they would assassinate. Because they were traitors and they had fallen in with Rome. So, I mean, Simon would be trained to hate Matthew. And yet, here they are, apostles, bound together in Jesus Christ. What a great story. Scripture silent. Doesn't give us any information about Simon. The last one, we're not going to look at Judas Iscariot, the 11th disciple. Judas, the son of James. And probably Judas, the son of James, is the quintessential obscure disciple. Because he's called Thaddeus elsewhere. We don't even know what his real name was. We, we, we don't know where he came from. We know that perhaps he was called Judas and changed his name to Thaddeus after you know Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, but that's all conjecture. We know nothing about Judas, the son, or Judas, the um, son of James. So here's the point, brothers and sisters. These men that I have just gone through are 11 men, soon to be 12, about whom... We know absolutely nothing. Now, that cannot be by mistake. 
that cannot be. I mean, that's just not the way that human beings write about the founders of whatever organization they're part of. They simply are not this obscure and this anonymous. It had to be done by choice. It had to be done under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. So why did the Holy Spirit want these men to be so obscure? Why did Jesus choose these particular men who were ordinary men who had nothing in and of themselves that would detract from him? I just gave the answer away. Because it's all about Jesus. You see, if their lights are shining, it's going to compete With the one true light. And these men were chosen. And they are obscure. So that through them. You will see Jesus Christ. And these 11 men fanned out. All over the known world. And they told other people about Jesus. So successfully. That we know nothing about them. As I look around me. At modern Christendom, I, I become more and more concerned, more and more troubled. Because I see a church that's fundamentally different than the one that was established on the back of these 12 men. I see a church that, um, and I see it in myself, I don't want to separate myself from this because I, I, I am a fallen human being and there's a degree of this within me. And, and, and I work against it. I fight against it constantly. I, I hate it when it perks up in me. But the ones that I'm talking about now are those who flaunt it, who make it absolutely part of who they are. They pursue it. There is such a degree of arrogance. That's just the only word that I can pull. It is arrogant. And these me first leaders that are leading huge churches, they have this 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 concept and it's look at me follow me now when that is what is being taught look at me follow me the way it filters down into the ones who are being taught is it's all about me and so therefore a new religion has been created that is not christianity folks it's all around us they call themselves christians but it is not christianity it has been defined as narcissistic therapeutic deism. And what that means is it's all about me and God is here to take care of me and provide me with what I need. If he doesn't, he's failed and that's the God I worship. That's not Christian. That is not the church that we are seeing established here. Brothers and sisters, these men are a dull gray mist and they are brought alive by the Spirit of Christ. Let me just give you a principle that the brilliance of the church is to be found in the obscurity of its saints and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The brilliance of the church is to be found in the obscurity of its saints. That's us. And the preeminence, the focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. It is not about you. It is not about me. It is not about us. It is not about any human being. It is all about Jesus. He's the brilliance of the church. And that's what we see in these men.
You know something? If we pursue power, if we pursue numbers, if we pursue righteousness, if we pursue fame, if we pursue wealth, if we pursue any of those things, we will always be the dull gray mist. We'll always be that pre-dawn fog bank that I was talking about. That's how we will be that and we will stay that because there will never be a light that will energize us and refract through us and change the world. But if we pursue Jesus and we pursue him only, then brothers and sisters, these 11 men became the most powerful organization on the face of the planet and we still belong to that organization. And so we have that same power, but it is not us, it is in Jesus. And the more that our focus is on Jesus, the greater the power of the church will be and transversely, the more that our focus is on ourselves and what God can do for us, the less power and the less effective we will be in this world. It is all about Jesus, and that's the image I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with that glorious sunrise that I tried my best to explain. I wish I had a beautiful picture of it I would show you, where it's just this entire mist that is absolutely vibrant with a white light, and Peter on his knees in front of Jesus, confessing his sins and mortified because he's sinfulness and humility and worship before the only one who can provide that light, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the image of the church, brothers and sisters. And that is why I say that the true brilliance that we have is the brilliance of obscurity. Think about that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, well, first of all, forgive us for what we have become. Thank you for the images that you give us in Scripture of what we are to be. And it's funny, we don't have to be progressive. Our progression is backwards. We need to be reforming to be back like these men that you have shown us. These totally obscure men, anonymous men. These men who are so important, who were so successful at telling others about you that we don't even know anything about them. We'll know about them when we meet them in heaven. But until then, we need to focus on what they told us about, which is you. And and to live our lives for you because of you, through you. Dear Lord, I just pray that that's the kind of church we will be. A church that is brilliant, not because we have lights of our own, but brilliant because of our own obscurity and your preeminence in our midst. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.